0: Hi, everyone. everyone. I'm John.
1: And I'm Georgia. And we're here. Inside
0: your ears. To
1: talk about the mac and cheese of movies.
0: This This is is Comfort Comfort Films.
1: Films. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Comfort Films episode 53. We're kicking off a November mystery month with the Alfred Hitchcock 1954 film, Rear Window. It's nice to get to Hitchcock, isn't it? It is. I mean, we talked about him quite a bit during our John Carpenter month because Hitchcock was kind of a, an influence on Carpenter, as we saw. Most definitely, yeah. But uh, talking actually about Alfred Hitchcock, I'm really excited about. And also, we've done a really good job of not discussing this movie with each other. Yes. So <laughs> I'm looking forward to hearing what your thoughts are. They
0: could be really shithouse wild, you know? <laughs> well, I got some crazy too, you know? stuff, man. I got some crazy stuff for us.
1: I am also personally excited to get into some mystery films mm-hmm. because I don't think we've done much mystery. I mean, I'm sure we've done a little, but really getting to focus in on it is exciting for me. That's really one of my favorite types of genre fiction to read. And also I'm working on writing one. Yeah, And it's, good. it's hard, you know? So it's really interesting to see other people kind of manage that. Like, I'm a huge fan of reading Agatha Christie and all these cozy mysteries I read all the time, especially as we get to the holiday season, because there are a lot that are set around Christmas, and I just, I don't know, that's one of my weird focus items (laughs) that I like to do every year, is read a few Christmas-setting cozy mysteries. So, this one isn't that cozy, but... (laughs) It's love... got a
0: different vibe. I mean, it's yeah. and I also just want to let everyone know I am also well read. I'm a I'm a connoisseur of Encyclopedia Brown, <laughs> and uh, I really enjoy that.
1: I loved Encyclopedia Brown yes. when I was growing up too. So I'm with you. I never was into Nancy Drew or Hardy Boys much.
0: I, I actually was into Hardy yeah. Boys. Okay. Yeah, I was into Hardy Boys. I did Nancy Drew once because I was over someone's house and they had Nancy Drew, and I figured why not. Yeah. And it was it was cool.
1: It's pretty similar, I yeah. think. Uh, And, you know, Scooby-Doo. My love for mysteries does go back to when I was a kid, um, probably to Scooby-Doo. But also because my mom really liked them. And my mom really liked this movie in particular, Rear Window. Hmm. Um, It came out like two years before she was born. And it was actually, I didn't know this at all, one of like these lost Hitchcock movies. Are you kidding? (laughs) No. No. He kind of uh, saved the rights to it and wouldn't let it be re- re-released. Okay. And they weren't shown again. This, along with four other movies, one of which is Vertigo. What? Were not shown again until they were re-released in theaters in the mid-80s. Wow. So the reason that I think I have such an interest in this movie is because it came back out okay. after not having been seen for 30 years. And that was when I was like six. So once it was re-released and it started being shown on television more and more, people you know, were really keyed up about it and, and watched it all the time. So I think that's why we've se- I've seen this one a bunch of times.
0: See, I have not seen this one very much at all. I only saw this, oh, I'd say probably in, in the past uh, 10 years or so. You know, growing up, what I would always see is I would always see the birds. Okay. And I would always see Psycho. Those were the movies that I saw. Other than that, I I knew nothing. I didn't have North by Northwest. I did get it earlier than Rear Window. Mm. But Rear Window came really really late for me. That's really I, interesting.
1: Yeah. That's so crazy to me because I definitely just saw this like a ton of times when I was growing up. I think it's great this movie. is this is easily my most watched Hitchcock movie.
0: Well, it would have to be Psycho for me. It would have to be Psycho.
1: Yeah. I, that would be a close second, but I think in my house, Jimmy Stewart was like tip top. My mom loved Jimmy Stewart. My
0: parents loved Jimmy Stewart too. He's from Western PA, yes. you know, which is incredible. There are so many connections. The screenwriter John Michael Hayes was actually born in Worcester, Massachusetts, and that's where George and I met. Yeah. Uh, we lived there for many years. 11. Yeah, yeah, right? So it's like we have that connection as well. Um, so it's like okay, uh, Grace Kelly also uh, from Pennsylvania. You yeah, know? she was from Philadelphia, which crazy.
1: My grandmother was from Philadelphia. Wow. My dad's mom.
0: Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Yes. I thought it was Philadelphia,
1: Mississippi. My grandfather was from Philadelphia, Mississippi. So oh, wow. my grandfather's from Philadelphia, Mississippi, and my grandmother is from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and they got married.
0: Wow. <laughs> Wow, I never knew. Okay. Really? That's so funny. Okay, yeah, I never kept that straight. I never did. Wow, that's incredible. It's weird. And as we said, James Stewart, he was born in western Pennsylvania. And my mother was also born in western Pennsylvania. And James Stewart's father ran a hardware store. And my mother's father ran a hardware store, too. So it's like there are all these really neat connections.
1: That's really cool. You
0: know, with this. Yeah, it's it's incredible. It's incredible. And the screenwriter, Hayes... What I really enjoyed is he actually had to study Grace Kelly when he was writing the script, Mm -hmm. you know, because Hitchcock said she's new, she's stiff, you really need to know her, you need to understand her. So the screenwriter, he spent a lot of time. He spent like, I think he said about two weeks just really getting to know her getting to know her at home, getting to know her personality. And Hitchcock wanted this story to really have her character, Lisa, have a lot of life. Mm-hmm. You know, he wanted that to be her her defining characteristic. And also it would force it so she wouldn't be stiff. Right. Yeah, and when, what they said is that the end product of what Grace Kelly does on screen is actually very close to her own personality.
1: Yeah, it said he, I think we saw something where he was talking about that it was like, Partially Grace Kelly herself, and then partially things from his own wife, oh, yeah. who also had been a fashion model before they got married. So, you know, and, and Lisa's character is interested in fashion and works in fashion. So I thought that was pretty smart.
0: Well, and then I really liked it. Well, greed writer was saying that his wife would just look over to him during the screening and say, wonder where you got that from? <laughs>
1: <laughs> I love that, too, because that sounds like us. We totally would do that.
0: We would. We would.
1: <laughs> yeah, so this, it's funny, too, when you think about the character of Lisa. I mean, she's huge in the story. She's super important. Mm-hmm. But she wasn't in the short story that this was based off. So I can't believe that. This was based on a short story by Cornell Woolrich, and the caretaker-type character in it was just this guy. Um, so there was no Lisa, and there was no uh, Stella. I think it was just a guy named Sam.
0: I think that's right. And how could you not have Stella?
1: Uh, Stella is definitely one of the things that makes this movie great. Thelma Ritter's performance is amazing. Mm -hmm. I love how she comes in and she's initially scolding Jeff for being a busybody. But then as soon as she learns some of the hot goss that's going on around the apartment complex. She's like right in on it with them.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. She comes in. She talks about peeping Toms. She talks about prison sentences, getting your eyes put out in the old days or any of these blonde bombshells you look at, you know, worth it to lose your eyes. You know, and then it's like after she criticizes him, she just makes sure she gets an eyeful of the entire scene as well. She's checking out all the apartments, you know, because, yeah. Oh, I love that character. She's like the lost golden girl.
1: (laughs) She is. I love her. Love her. She's so funny. And just she's so matter of fact, like all the way to the end, Mm -hmm. you know, when the murderer has been kind of discovered. And they know that there's a body part in Thorvald's apartment. Mm-hmm. And the cop guy's like, oh, do you want to go check it out? And she's like, no, I don't want any part of her. And then she's like, oops, because she realizes what she just said. It's really great. I love her.
0: Well, we have strong women in this. Very strong women. you know, And that's both in Lisa and in Stella. And it gives the film a very modern feel. And I just can't believe the, the energy that those two women have in this film. Yeah. And it's so well-written, and it's so well-played. It doesn't feel like a movie at all.
1: No, it feels like a play, but it also just feels like you're, like, in it. Like, yeah. when you watch a play, like, a, in my opinion, if it's a good play, it's like there's this level of immediacy that you are removed from slightly when you're in a movie. Even in a really great suspense movie, there's, like, a remove because you're not right in there. But in this, I feel always, even though I've seen it many times and I know what happens, that I'm right in the middle of the action. I mean, the the scene where Grace Kelly's Lisa is over in Thorvald's apartment is one of the most terrifying scenes oh my God, yes. in a movie ever. And partly it's because of just the circumstances of the writing and and everything, but it's also these close-up shots that they do on jimmy stewart where he looks so terrified and his acting is like amazing there like you can just see the fear that he has that she's going to be caught
0: well this whole film is based around the idea in my opinion of a place that looks very sunny and happy and then we see the evil that lurks underneath Now, Deborah Hill actually said about 1978's Halloween that that was the idea. It was this similar vibe. And when you come into Rear Window, you know, we see, you know, the apartment next door and the camera, you know, pans across and it's this beautiful day. And we see all of these people and and it's I feel like it's the opening of a musical. Yeah. I mean, we're in New York. Like, why not? You know, I feel like somebody's just going to start singing.
1: And it's this really, like, singular set. Yes. That they've constructed, you know, on the Paramount lot. And it looks like a great theater set.
0: It's, yeah. When I was younger, I was in a bunch of musicals. And I would always be, you know, on stage because I'd be performing. And you really get to see these sets. And I don't know how to explain it when I watch Rear Window. I can tell it's a set. But it's such a finely crafted set. You know, when you look down on the left, and then there's that alley where you can see through to the mm. bar. Yeah. Oh! And <laughs> and then there's action in the film that takes place there as well. You know, we're looking in all the windows. We're looking in the fire escapes. We're looking in the garden.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I looked into this a little bit because I wanted to learn more about how they did this. And they, you know, initially Hitchcock had thought, well, maybe we'll shoot on location in Greenwich Village. So he sent some people out there to look, but he couldn't really get what he wanted and he knew how much he wanted to have control. I mean, that's the thing with Hitchcock, I think, is like his level of control over every single thing that's happening in the movie is like so high. Oh, sure. He's a genius. Yeah, he's, he's really brilliant and he can think about every single thing that's going on at once, all of your senses. You know, it's it's kind of unbelievable. Um, but as far as the set goes, they did actually construct the set with 31 different apartments and many of them were furnished. I, I had different uh, notes from different places one said that eight of them were fully furnished. One said twelve, but you know, a good number were completely furnished. And the ones in the building across the way actually had running water and electricity. Wow. Um, Georgine Darcy, who played Miss Torso, the dancer, uh-huh. um, would just hang out and kind of live in the apartment during in between takes because <laughs> she could. I mean, it was it was like a real apartment. Um, and I bet that would actually add, you know, to your performance as well. Cause you
0: actually feel like you're at home.
1: Yeah. And I mean, it was, they had this lighting rig up above that had so many lights on it. Apparently any lights that weren't in use at the time would be pulled to be put into this light lighting kind of rig that they made where there were four different light settings of like daytime, dusk twilight and and nighttime okay so that they could switch out the lighting in like less than 45 minutes or whatever to go from setup to setup which is pretty unheard of to have that quick of a relight happen um but in the daytime lighting like it was so hot because they had to have so much so much light that like the people on the top floors were like practically dying (laughs) because it was so hot um because they they had just tons of light to mimic daytime because it does look like outdoor light at some points uh, during the movie during the daytime shots
0: well it's also supposed to be summertime it's supposed mm. to be this sweltering weather yeah and i mean if you have that type of like heat from the lights coming on to you That's and like... you can live in your own apartment that you're playing in i mean wow yeah i mean this is Wow. I mean, being in this, I mean, I bet would have been an experience. Oh, I, yeah. I wonder if anybody just kind of like just stayed there. You know what I mean? It's <laughs> like, like I live here now. Basically. I mean, we're all actors. Who knows? We're all broke, right? Just kind of, you know, <laughs> save a little rent, do a little sublet action for a few weeks.
1: Well, another, that's really, since that would have been really smart. Another thing that I thought was super cool is that Hitchcock only really directed from L.B. Jeffery's apartment. So from the Jeff apartment, Jimmy Stewart's apartment, he didn't go out to the other areas. He would just talk to the actors by radio. Okay. And they had like flesh colored earpieces in what? to take direction from him. He would just talk to them. One of the funny things that happened because of this kind of directing people into the earpiece thing that Hitchcock was doing was that uh, the couple who would sleep on the fire escape when the rain started they had to bring their mattress inside because they were getting rained on and Hitchcock went into the earpiece for each of them and told them to pull the mattress a different way but they didn't know that so they are struggling against each other the actors actually because um, one of them is trying to pull it one way and one's trying to pull the other and they kind of start scuffling and arguing with each other and it was so funny because it was so real that he didn't even do a second take. He just took that one.
0: <laughs> it's great. Like, the guy just falls into the window at the end.
1: Yeah, <laughs> that happened. For That just happened organically. Wow. And that guy is um, this actor, Frank Cady, who was in Petticoat Junction and Green Acres. Like, wow. I recognized him, and I was like, what is he in? had to look him up.
0: Well, what's also interesting in that scene is that they're out there with an alarm clock, yeah. which he has tied to the railing yeah. of the fire escape. And he tries to loosen it, you know, in the commotion, of course, because the rain, they want to get the mattress in. He just drops that alarm clock.
1: And it goes off. Oh, and my And it's God. just ringing. Yeah, that scene is hilarious to me. <laughs> I thought that it was pretty smart, though, to sleep on the fire escape like that because, you know, they probably don't have air conditioning and it's hot as heck at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And, you know, going outside to sleep, pretty smart. Yeah, there's some smart people out there. The lighting setup was all run from Jeff's apartment as well. All the switches to go to different setups were in that apartment.
0: This is absolutely incredible how modern this setup is. yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, and again, how innovative. I mean, nobody had ever done anything like this before. Alfred Hitchcock wanted to do it this way, and he figured it out. He and his crew figured out a way to do it. There were two different camera kind of setups Um, So the uh, cinematographer on this was Robert Burks, who was Hitchcock's favorite cinematographer and also friend. Um, There were, there was one, um, there were setups in the apartment with the camera and then outside to get like across the way and into the other apartments. There was like a a camera with a telephoto lens on a crane to kind of go and take the other shots. Um, Otherwise, it was inside the apartment. So, again, innovators. This is what I love. This is what I really love about movies because the whole thing is when you watch the movie, you get the story because of these really smart people doing really smart things. I don't think that there is another director who could have told the story this way um, because it's just so intensely thought out, even the sound. You know, we kind of accidentally stumbled onto a documentary about Alfred Hitchcock's use of sound in different movies, but in Rear Window, I was shocked by, like, how much note-taking he did and what kind of notes he would give to, you know, the sound people, saying, these are the sounds I want here and here, and, like, he would just, it would always be, like, a second script that was just sound cues. Well, it's,
0: I, I mean, I've worked as a director, and I understand you need to have specificity, but specificity to the level that Alfred Hitchcock had, I, I never had. I, I've never seen anyone with it. Yeah. I didn't know that you could go that far because when you're directing, and you've directed as well, it's like you're using your mind to really kind of play everything out in your mind at once. You know, it, it's like... OK, here it is. And then, you know, you try to to have people reenact this vision that you're seeing. But I, I mean, I just can't imagine to the second, you know, being like, oh, I want it to sound. It was actually, I believe, from the birds. So it's mm-hmm. not from Rear Window. But this this is the one that stood out to me. Uh, someone was running from the birds, and they jumped into their pickup truck. And they turned on the truck, and they sped away. And they said, "Well, Hitchcock said that he wanted the engine to sound like a person screaming."
1: <laughs> yeah. The what? That's that's what I'm thinking. Like what? he he could. Okay, it's it goes beyond visual storytelling because movies are visual storytelling, and the exciting thing about movies as compared to theater, for example, is that by using a camera, you can guide the viewer's eye to what you want them to see. If I'm watching a play, I can look at whatever I want. Right. If I'm watching a movie, the camera is showing me what to look at. But beyond that, he's also telling me what he wants me to hear. I mean, I don't think that a lot of directors go that hard (laughs) to, like, be thinking about exactly what they want you to experience in all of your senses. I mean, I think that's kind of a level of detail that I think is hard to achieve in in my mind. Like, I don't know. I'm not a very sensory person anyway, so, like, for me, it would just be like, oh, I, I would be manipulating people mentally rather than with their senses. But I, I think it's pretty amazing. And, you know, he's also directing actors at the same time. Although I take it from when I read <laughs> that, like, Jimmy Stewart said that he doesn't necessarily direct actors in the way that you normally think of somebody directing actors. And Thelma Ritter said the same thing. She said he wouldn't tell you if he didn't like your performance. He just looked like he was going to throw up. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that would motivate you, right? <laughs> yeah,
1: that would really take you down. And then Jimmy Stewart said that, the, well, they would con, they would kind of converse just through looks. You know, he would give him a look of what he did or didn't like or change it or whatever. Instead of saying something to him, it wasn't like a traditional uh director sitting down and going into the character with you and stuff. Stewart said that, you know, he thinks Hitchcock kind of just cast people who he thought would just do it the way he wanted to without him having to tell them.
0: Sure. I mean, that's one of the things, you know, all the things that, you know, when I was in school and and when I would go to different teachers, that's what they would say. They would say a lot of the times that when you go into a film project, you have to be a self-directing actor because the director has so many other things to worry about other than you. They're taking it for granted. You can do your job because they've already auditioned you and they know what you look like Mm -hmm. and they know what your costume is. So it's just like, you know, you got it, you know, um, for me with Hitchcock and, and his directing, it's, uh, man, it's so interesting to me because I would be a lot more interested in working with the actors on the performances to generate that experience. Mm-hmm. And I would have, you know, some ideas for light or sound or set nowhere even near, right, what he has. Yeah, um, it, It's a different way of working, but obviously the way he does it is the way to do it. <laughs> you know, he said that with Rear Window is like the purest form of, of cinema. Because, you know, what do we see? We see Jimmy Stewart, and we see him, you know, with the camera or the binoculars or his bare eyes, right? Then we see what he sees, right? Then we see his reaction. So, I mean, that's that's it. I mean, that's it. That's, that's the tennis game right there. So, it's like you have exactly the experience. I, I mean, it's incredible. And they also talked about... Um, in one of these interviews, that if you actually changed the middle image, okay, and this can be outside of rear window. So in film, if you see someone, you see what they're looking at, and then you see them again, right? If you change that middle image, you will get an entirely different reaction from the audience. Even though the actor has not done anything different, you're still using that same reaction shot. So it's like our perception in the moment you have to be a psychologist you have to be an electrical genius <laughs> you have to be so smart on all levels yeah. you know to to achieve this
1: and just detail oriented i mean uh we read this interview this amazing uh Hitchcock Truffaut book yes um which has this extensive interview between these two great great directors and the rear window section, they discuss like your introduction to L.B. Jeffries and how, you know, instead of having a discussion about how he ended up laid up with this broken leg, they just take you through. You see this guy with a broken leg in a wheelchair. You see his broken camera. You see a photo of a car crash from very close up. And you know what has happened to him. So in just like this maybe five-second camera pan across the apartment, you've told a story that you can cut out like, you know, probably two minutes of dialogue just because of what's in the camera frame.
0: It's so intelligent when people really know how to use visual storytelling. I have to tell you that's something that... I still always have to to retrain my brain to think about. I always want to talk it out. I do too. Right? I just want to discuss. you know. And that's that's why we have a
1: podcast.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That is exactly why we have a podcast. Now, all right, this is an aside that I do want to bring up, but I do think it's interesting. Okay? So when I was talking earlier, I, you know, was going to say Jimmy Stewart, then I stopped, and then, you know, I just went ahead and did it. The reason for that is he's credited as James Stewart, I don't know him. You know what I mean? What right do I have to call him Jimmy? He's older than me, right? Like, you know, it's just like and everybody does it. It's just like a thing. And it's just like, I I don't know this guy at all. I mean, he's like an icon, you know? His acting, so strong, you know? And I always had the respect your elders thing going, (laughs) you know? I, I just don't understand why we just get a free pass to just call him Jimmy. You know, like nobody, I mean, well, Hitchcock was Hitch, right? But who got to call him Hitch? I don't know that.
1: I mean, I'm almost calling him Hitch myself too, so Mm. I don't know.
0: Nobody called him Al, I bet. You know what Uh, I mean?
1: Al, Al, Fred, Freddy.
0: Oh, shit. Freddy, what's on the docket today, you know?
1: (laughs) I mean, I've always called Jimmy Stewart, Jimmy Stewart. I don't know why. I don't know if it's something where when we were younger, people referred to him more by that. Um,
0: I heard it a lot when I was younger, and you would always hear Jimmy Stewart, but it's just the question is, what gave us that power,
1: you know? know? Well, I mean, people go by different names, I guess. I mean, James Stewart is kind of like his formal given name, and Jimmy is probably like a nickname. Right. That people just norm like called him. But I don't know. I'd have to go back, you know, maybe to when I was growing up and see like interviews and stuff and see if they introduced him as Jimmy, but I always thought of him as Jimmy Stewart. I did too. I it just weirds me out to call him James Stewart. So. I
0: did it. I did it. And I tried to do it out of respect. I'm like James Stewart. And I'm like ah. you know, it's just like, oh God, that's weird. But again, it's just like, is this okay? Like, I don't know. like if I knew him, if he said, Call me Jimmy You got it, you know, but I don't know you. (laughs) I really respect you. You're older than me. I don't know. So I just wanted to to get that out of the way, you know, so there it is. It's
1: up to you. I'm going to keep going with the Jimmy. (laughs) I'm on the
0: Jimmy train, too. I've said it. I've said it.
1: I just can't think of him any other way. I don't know. Again, like my family... (laughs) I mean, we loved him growing up. Like, I've watched It's a Wonderful Life like a trillion times. Same. Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Like, all this stuff. So, for me, it's always like he is a friend of the family. Okay. Like, I feel like he could have been, like, my grandfather's bestie or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Like, I just, I guess that's it for me. I just think of him as, like, I probably do have too much of a familiarity <laughs> with Jimmy Stewart. Because my entire family just thought he was so great when we were growing up. Like
0: we call him J Dog <laughs> if we want to. I'm What's not up, gonna J-Dawg? stop here. Like I don't know, J S <laughs> Stewie, J Stews. <laughs> I
1: don't know Stewie. Anyway. Yeah. Okay. So, um, one thing I did want to mention before moving on from the sound is uh, the music in the movie is well, pretty much that, and all the sound is diegetic sound after the first like three scenes or three shots where it has this orchestral score so it opens with this orchestral score and then once that fades out everything else that you hear is happening in the film that's what diegetic means so um if if you hear a sound it's supposed to be happening within the world of the film it's not like a soundtrack or something like that that was added You know, you hear the dog running around. You hear any music that you hear during the film is coming from another apartment. Either they're playing a record or it's uh, the guy over in the studio apartment over to the right, and he's, you know, working on composing.
0: Another point, and this, again, this is like digging in with the sound. Uh, It can be diegetic, which means it's in the film, but if it is like the soundtrack, It's non-diegetic.
1: Yeah, so like... So there you go. Yeah. Yeah. If you're hearing a song playing in the movie, and then it switches over and you see that somebody is listening to the radio, then you know that's a diegetic sound. If the soundtrack is playing while somebody's surfing in the middle of the ocean or something, that would be non-diegetic.
0: What if like Jimmy Stewart surfing in the middle of the ocean listening to Tears for Fears
1: non-diegetic
0: also anachronistic but <laughs> well he it,
1: died in 1997 okay so I, he could have been you know surfing in the shout. 80s
0: yeah yeah <laughs> i could everybody wants to rule the world great song for everybody i'm it's really like 70
1: he's surfer in his 70s i guess that happens
0: i feel like i'm fred willard in best in show tonight so <laughs> uh yeah okay
1: that's that's funny though that's good it's enjoyable I mean, just to be funny again, I read that the reason that Raymond Burr got cast in this film as Lars Thorwald is that it was easy to make him up to look like David O. Selznick, (laughs) who Hitchcock really disliked profoundly for meddling a lot with him. David Selznick was a producer, and Hitchcock didn't like how much he tried to mess around with him when he was directing something, so he made him into a villain in the film.
0: Well, how about the fact that Raymond Burr was most well known for playing a good guy? Perry Mason, he was this lawyer good guy, you know, and he would solve the crimes, he would do the right thing. You trusted him, he was rock solid. And this film really gets into your head with that. Yeah. You know? It's
1: scary. I mean, it's terrifying. And he's like physically imposing, you mm-hmm. know. You feel like he could really like beat the hell out of somebody. Um Yeah, he also later played Ironside and was in a wheelchair like L.B. Jeffries. Oh, wow. (laughs) Well, we
0: also have other people in this apartment complex, like we have Miss Lonely Hearts.
1: Yes, I think that's a great character, and I was really interested in, in that this time when I watched it, because, you know, she's very sad, and what's going on with her, you know, she is lonely and she like the first time we kind of see her she's kind of going through this imagined date in her mind she set her table for two people she's kind of like playing out what it would be like and then she just gets really sad at the end and you know we see jimmy stewart watching her go through all of this and he's you know basically he's spying on everybody yes in this complex throughout the entire movie Mm -hmm. um he's seeing intimate intimate things that he shouldn't be seeing from these people and you know again it goes back to what you were saying about you see him you see what he's seeing then you see him again and his kind of reaction is what guides us in our own reaction And in that, you know, he has this, he's kind of laughing at the beginning, but then when he sees her, you know, what she's actually doing, he gets really sad.
0: Well, it is, because at first it seems playful, like she's having a good time. Yeah. You know, just like a kid when you're playing pretend and you have the imaginary tea party. And you're like, oh, okay. But then, you know, when she just breaks down and cries, it's horrible. It's heartbreaking. Yeah. You know, it's, this movie has so much going on that it's hard to follow one track so at this point i think i'd like to talk about what he's seeing next door so he sees miss torso right and she is a dancer and you know she's like bending over (laughs) and you get this shot of her rear end and like you know jimmy stewart you know (laughs) it's like thinking it's pretty good you know she bends over and she doesn't have a top on. You know, we don't see the front. We can tell from the back. And then she puts a bra on. And, you know, then she turns around and she keeps dancing while she does everything in her apartment. Mm-hmm. And it's just a very fun thing that's happening. Again, this is the beginning of the film where you feel like it's going to break out into a musical.
1: Yes, that's you true. For you know? sure. And you've got a dancer, so that right. even lends more to that feeling.
0: Well, it's... I, I mean, the problem that this movie has well it's not a problem where this movie gets to be strange is when you really start thinking about what it is that jimmy stewart is doing okay follow me on this this gets weird <laughs> okay jimmy stewart looks out his window with his bare eyes okay and then he'll if and then if he's really interested then he wants the binoculars Mm-hmm. And then if he's really, really interested, <laughs> he wants that camera with that long telephoto lens. Yeah. I feel that this is a sexual metaphor. Oh wow. Okay, so yeah. This all of this gets pretty wild. Okay. So we start with Miss Torso, and I, I feel like that is probably the 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 easiest way to to find our doorway into that. Um, because, you know, at the beginning, we do see a dancer. People could be thinking of a strip tease, And, you know, she also has, you know, different people over to her house later on. She has many suitors. And he's always wanting to know what everyone is doing next door. When they look at Miss Lonely Hearts, okay, so we talked about the dinner scene by herself. mm mm-hmm. Now, she actually has a suitor come over, okay? And it looks like it's going to be a romantic situation. And, you know, so they pull the blinds. And at this point, Jeffries has actually roped in other people. Yeah. He starts roping everyone in on these kind of sex games with watching these people. It's honestly like a peep show.
1: Yeah, it's a peep show. It's a voyeurism. Yes. Like, big time. Yeah. yeah. Well, There's... what... No way around it. Huh. And and Stella says that he's like a peeping Tom. Yes, right at the and beginning. And talks about him, you know, going to jail.
0: Yeah, and then she's in on it, which yeah. is hilarious. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean that's that's a whole like commentary that we could we could follow down. This gets interesting. So with Miss Lonely Hearts, she has this suitor, okay? And Jeff goes, uh, you know, he's kinda young for her okay he's like a thousand grace kelly is in her 20s okay and it's just like what yeah he's like
1: 21 years older than grace kelly yeah and then somebody that's fine yeah
0: it's great i mean stella refers to him as a young man i'm like what's going on she's
1: just trying to convince us i guess
0: (laughs) sell it sell it (laughs) so they're looking down at miss lonely heart's The suitor is there. It looks like it's going to be a romantic thing. She pulls the blinds, but then he starts to force himself on her. Mm -hmm. They don't do anything. No. They just watch, and they wait. And that, to me, is probably one of the most fucked up parts in this movie because it's like, okay, you're watching someone be sexually assaulted in their home. You're really all about getting into Thorwald's business. You're really all about getting into the things you're interested in. But when it's actually helping someone, you're not interested. You're there for the thrill of it. Hmm. You know, so it's like, I I think that honestly, you know, this situation could have gone much, much worse. Thankfully, Miss Lonely Hearts gets the asshole out of her apartment. And you're like, but it shows you that morality is not a given in this. We trust Jimmy Stewart because of his body of work, mm-hmm. and consistently Alfred Hitchcock exploits that with the roles that yeah. he gives him
1: in vertigo, we, damn straight
0: exactly you trust him because we trust him, we'd never think he'd do anything wrong. He is watching a married couple, right? yeah, he wants
1: to see what's happening over there, yeah, he's like consistently disappointed. That their shade is drawn. Exactly. Yeah.
0: And then he actually brings in all of the people that he knows to get involved in this. So there is an actual, you know, murder uh, that did occur, but I don't know. I I mean, I feel that his obsession is the primary thing here. And it's also like a a window... um, I don't know, into his mind, right?
1: Yeah, well, and he doesn't let it go either. It is like his kind of doggedness about sticking with this murder idea that just keeps things going. Um, I would say that to support your point, only kind of at the end, right before, you know, their big confrontation, do they do something to, like, um, interfere to help someone and that's when miss lonely hearts is about to od on drugs they call the police intending to tell them to go to her and they're on the line when thorwald goes back into his apartment where lisa is but they had called the police because of her to help her she stops taking the pills because she hears the song coming from the songwriter
0: so they do something good eventually event exactly eventually which
1: only (laughs) it's conveniently set up that way to stop them from being able to call and warn lisa that thorwald is coming Because they are kind of wrapped up in what's going on with Miss Lonely Hearts instead of doing what they're supposed to be doing, which is watching for Thorwald so they can warn Lisa to get out of there.
0: When they're looking next door, in particular when Jimmy Stewart is looking next door, he sees Thorwald and his wife at the beginning. And, you know, Lisa wants to marry Jeff. Yeah. And Jeff is like, you know, I want to. Be a man of the world and I want to be out there. He's
1: basically like, I'm too cool for you. Well, he's also
0: like, I want to keep it open so I can keep playing the game and I can keep hooking up with other people. I mean, this is really weird too, okay? But think about this. So physically speaking, he's got one leg out and one leg in a cast. And that's almost like his feelings on the relationship with Lisa. He's one in and one out. Yeah. Okay. And when he looks over, you know, at Thorwald and the wife, okay, he's like, oh, look at this. She's just nagging and all wives nag. Then he sees, you know, the other couple with the dog that they love. And they seem fun to me, but they bicker and they're eccentric. And that's not the life that he wants. You know, this isn't an order in the film of how he sees them. It's just like, this is what he sees next door. He sees, you know, the, the composer, right, who is always working. And he has, you know, people over. He has Alfred Hitchcock over yeah. who's, you know, fixing the clock. Um, yeah. And then he has people over to play music with later. But, you know, that's a guy that's dedicated to his work. So I feel like that is kind of like really upsetting to Jeff because he can't go out
1: and do his work correct
0: but he has to hear and see as over the course of the film okay that this musician composes the song lisa right Mm -hmm. which we finally get the finished version of at the end of the film
1: when he now has two legs
0: Well, at that point, when he has two legs in a cast, he's not looking at the window anymore. That means he's fully committed to being married.
1: And I think that's an amazing point. How brilliant is that?
0: It's crazy, man. It's just like there's a lot of weird stuff in this. And one then,
1: leg in, one leg out, and then at the end it's two legs.
0: That's there. In. Yeah. If we jump to the ending quick where he's got his two legs in, now this is gets very interesting. So... At the end of the film, you know, he's got the the two legs in a cast and the wheelchair is facing away from the window. And at this point, Lisa is on the bed, you know, and she's reading this book about the Himalayas. And, you know, she's kind of dressed like a tomboy, right? She's got jeans on and she's got like a button shirt and then he's asleep, and then she switches over to Bazaar. <laughs> so it's almost like she has this charade that she keeps up for him while he's awake. You yeah. know, she goes along with him to be like, I support it.
1: Yeah, because while well, he thinks that she can't keep up with his adventurous nature at the beginning and over the course of the movie because she, you know, runs over and, like, throws herself into investigating this mystery... On his behalf, and but also because she's interested, that kind of convinces him that she is the right girl for him.
0: Now, I don't know if this is a real restaurant. I don't know if 21 is a real restaurant when she brings the food over. You know, maybe it was. It I, was, I'm, yeah. Okay.
1: Well, That's I al- not where that food comes from because they shot this in L.A. <laughs> and that 21 Club is in New York, but yes. Okay. I read that they probably got that from Musso and Frank's mm. Grill on Hollywood Boulevard because... It's lobster thermidor with julienne palm frites. Okay. And that was a dish that was on the Mousseau and Frank's menu in 1954. And that was one of Alfred Hitchcock's favorite restaurants.
0: Oh, that's very good. Yeah. I think that's much better than what I'm going to say. So catch this. So this is my lame-ass point. So it's from 21, okay? And the reason I think that's interesting is Lisa is basically gambling with being in love Mm -hmm. with Jeff. And so that's, that's the only thing that I had there.
1: That's funny. Yeah,
0: because it's just like she is really putting herself out there for him.
1: I mean, it's interesting that all of the things that he sees out of his window are to do with people's relationships. So, you know, even, you know, Miss Torso, he sees um, at different points, she's just exercising or eating or whatever in her, in her apartment. But she also has this one scene where there's three guys who are over and they're all clearly vying for her attention. And she ends up outside on her balcony with the oldest one who also looks kind of the best dressed. And Jeff kind of makes a point that, you know, she is going for the most well-to-do looking one and says that to Lisa, you know, and kind of, implies that that's, you know, what she would be doing, too. Um, It's funny to me, because um, in the context of talking about Thorwald, um, Hitchcock noted that, uh, in an interview with Peter Bogdanovich, that he um, felt more sympathetic to some of his antagonists. And in particular with Thorwald, he thought that he felt sympathetic because Uh, when they have that scene, which is awesome, by the way, of Thorwald going into Jeff's apartment, that, you know, he's kind of trying to reason with him and say, what can I do? You know, what do you want from me? And Jeff just doesn't speak to him and doesn't say anything. And Hitchcock said that Jeff is kind of a bastard. (laughs) And I think that that isn't the only time when Jeff is kind of a bastard. We kind of see that kind of throughout the movie. That I think it's exactly what you're saying is that Hitchcock is exploiting the fact that Jimmy Stewart is perceived as like this really good guy, but he's kind of a dick through over and over throughout this movie. And some of it is because he's uncomfortable, that he's like a man of action who's stuck in a wheelchair you know, half-plastered up to his waist. Half-plastered sounds like he's drunk, so maybe laugh. Probably that, too. (laughs) But, you know, and then he's also this weird creeper who's, like, peeping in on everybody and watching them Mm -hmm. with, you know, without their consent. He's fully awful to Lisa multiple times throughout the movie in the guise of acting like it's, you know, all for her, too, you know, that he doesn't want her to... Be stuck in a relationship that she shouldn't be in. She's got better things to do with herself and everything, but mostly it's because he doesn't think that she can keep up with him and his awesomeness, you know? And, yeah. you know, I do think there's another case where Thorwald is sort of sympathetic because his wife seems like a complete jerk. Like she makes fun of him, she's rude. I don't know. I, I can see why he would have snapped.
0: Well, I think that there is a real comparison to be drawn between Jeff and Thorwald. Because, yeah, he Jeff is really lousy. Um, I, I mean, there is, and you brought this up. I would never have thought of it. And this is, you said, what about Henrik Ibsen's A Doll House? Oh, yeah. Right? Torvald Helmer, right?
1: Yeah, that's the name of the husband. So if you haven't read A Doll's House congratulations um no i'm just joking it's an excellent play it is a good play i just read it too many times this happens when you're an english major that, that there's a certain piece of literature that every teacher decides to assign you throughout your school career and i had two of them and one of them was a doll's house and the other one was beowulf so i've read both of those things way too many times for me to have any interest in them but yeah, when we were watching this, I was struck by the fact that we have this character whose name is Lars Thorwald, um, and the main character, the male character in A Doll's House by Henrik Ibsen, which is a play about domestic unhappiness, I guess I would say, is named Torvald. So there's, you know, a closeness there. And I don't know if Cornell Woolrich was thinking of that or not, but I think it's probably possible. I mean, that's where Thorwald came from, is the actual short story.
0: Well, I, I think that it definitely is there, whether they're aware of it or not. Because Jeff's big conceit with Lisa is that she's too successful. okay? And in A Doll's House, Torvald doesn't want nora to work he wants nora to be his pet and he wants to be the one bringing in the money yeah and what happens again jeff is pissed because lisa you know is very successful travels all
1: around the world and she's financially successful yes she has everything he is successful he's a great photographer he works for this magazine um he gets to travel and go on all these assignments and take pictures of cool stuff but he lives in this like little crappy apartment in Greenwich Village she lives up on 63rd Street and gets a dinner out at the 21 club yeah um he's not eating lobster thermidor on his salary he's eating ham sandwiches as we see multiple times throughout the movie <laughs> it's I,
0: I think that's really where where the connection of it comes in is is that he wants to be the one that is making the money and has the freedom
1: that's really interesting and yeah i mean because the Torvald thorwald doesn't really (laughs) fit as much um, from what we get to know about the thorwalds Um, what we see there is that we have this the wife is kind of in the bed Um, i'm assuming that we're supposed to assume that she's sick or something but uh, i don't see that what i do see is her kind of making fun of lars and you know them kind of getting into an argument about things
0: well that's like a mirror reflection of lisa and jeff and you know because jeff is like thorwald's wife he is always picking on lisa always criticizing her saying you know it isn't good enough i don't know if i want to be together he is always looking at other women. He's looking at other people having sex. That is a lot more interesting to him than her.
1: And there's even a scene where they're like, you know, she's like lying with him and they're yes. kissing. And he can't stop thinking about what's going on in the apartment across the way.
0: Yeah. And I feel like, again, it's it's almost like some kind of, of, of sexual game. It's like this sexual energy That everyone gets caught up in. It's this titillation. It's this thrill. Again, just like a horror film. Yeah. You know, and at the end of the film, what happens? Okay. So Thorwald and his wife are out of the picture. And we have Jeff and we have Lisa. Jeff, at this point, both of his legs are broken. So they're both in casts. He's in the wheelchair. He's facing away from the window. Right? So he's got the double casts. That means he's committed to her. He's not looking out the window. That means he doesn't have a wandering eye anymore.
1: The temperature has gone down. Yes. So at the beginning, it was almost 100. Now it's like 70. So it's nice and pleasant and and cooled down.
0: Yeah, you're you're right on it. And then what's happening? It's like we see then... We see Lisa and she's laying on the bed and she's got on these jeans and she's got this red button up shirt. She's kind of dressed like a tomboy. She's reading this book on the Himalayas, you know, which I'm sure would please Jeff, you know, show she's rugged and ready to go. And then, you know, he's asleep. So she switches over to Bazaar. So it's very interesting because really what we have across the street is Jeff is like Thorwald's wife. Yeah. You know, and, and so it's like, and at the end, I guess we're saying that Lisa is like Thorwald, but, you know, a better version, a you Less know? murdery. <laughs> less murdery. No shitty costume jewelry. <laughs> I mean, in Oh, the... my heavens. Yeah, yeah.
1: Watching this with like a. <laughs> watching this, you know, on a, a tube television in the mid 80s and watching it on like a 4K, you know, capable television now are two different experiences because when we see. You know, what uh, Thorwald is pulling out of his display case. Like, he's a salesman, so he has this case. It's this costume jewelry, and it really does look like plastic Mardi Gras beans. <laughs> it well, looks terrible. looks horrible, but you just you made me think of something else. Lisa is selling fashion. No, that's true. She is. She talks about having a sales meeting and then going to look at these dresses and all these things, too. Yeah. She's a very successful... Salesperson. And she sells high-end items. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It's it. This is another weird thing that I noticed. So next to the window that Jeff's always looking out on the left, there's a photograph of just like you're looking out the window. And I think it might be the Empire State Building. Mm. So it's like next to the window, the open window that he looks out of, is a picture of, you know, your view of looking out a window. So it's like they really have... You know, so many things in there. I wish that I could just see all of the things in Jeff's apartment close-up. Yeah. You know, I want to see what every single picture is. There's that one picture that's just this massive, like, cone of smoke. Yeah. You know, and then, but uh Lieutenant Tom Doyle, his buddy from the war, says that he allowed Jeff to take all these pictures because, you know, he was flying or doing whatever. He gave him... Like the space, the opportunity to do it. Mm-hmm. And again, this is interesting because Tom is pissed at Jeff because Jeff got the job, you know, that he wanted while Tom is a cop. And Tom doesn't seem particularly happy. He seems a no. very grumpy guy. No,
1: and he just wants Jeff to like F off with all this <laughs> murder stuff. Big time. He's like, look, it's fine. The wife is in, you know, upstate. Everybody saw her. We got a postcard. She made a phone call. It's all good, you know. And yet Jeff keeps coming up with all these things. Yeah, but I saw him leaving multiple times with his display case. So maybe he was just going to go sell some jewelry at 3 o'clock in the morning?
0: Yeah. Another point that's very interesting is when we have Jeff actually talking to Tom and uh, he's actually holding that scratcher. Mm -hmm. while he's doing it and he just keeps playing with that scratcher and he's trying to find out how Tom can get a search warrant to search Thorwald's house and you know Tom is like we can't do it we can't do it you know nothing and Jeff just keeps holding that scratcher it's literally like he has an itch that he can't scratch
1: Mm -hmm. and we do have that other scene where he did have a real literal itch in his under his cast and he's finally able to scratch it so that's really funny
0: yeah yeah the other reason that i think tom is upset with jeff and all this information because it's like oh jeff thinks he can do my job too he just gets to do everything it's like of course of course jeff you know you're the lucky one (laughs) you're special (laughs) you know i'll just continue you know with my my life you know i don't know what his marriage is like i don't know if he you know, is pleased with that. I don't know where they live. Jeff has, you know, th- this loving, beautiful girlfriend who is financially successful, and so Jeff
1: could just like he could, I don't know. He could do nothing. He could yeah. write a book. He could just do a book of photographs. He could do anything he wants to do. The world is a
0: waster. Yeah. Yeah.
1: What's really funny to me is that the criteria for like everybody deciding that oh yes, this is actually a murder, is that Mrs. Thorwald's wedding ring is still in the apartment. And they're all like, but if she was alive anywhere, that wedding ring would be on her. And I'm just like, "Uh, well, I guess if John or I uh, ever is, is, you know, found murdered, the other one is in a lot of trouble because neither one of us ever wears our wedding ring. So, if somebody's like comes to the house and they're like, "But the wedding ring is here." Circumstantial? Yes. Wouldn't work for us.
0: I don't even know where my wedding ring is. I I don't know. I just I'm like one of these weird people. I don't like wearing things. It isn't like, you know, we're not committed. It isn't like we're yeah. not married. People but... give us a lot of oh cramp about it, but we so just, much
1: shit. I just don't want to wear the wedding ring. I, I, I used to wear rings all the time. I used to wear a ton of them. I would have like, I had three that were for my left hand and two that were from my right hand. I wore them all the time. And I just got to the point where I just didn't want to do it anymore. No. I just don't want to wear rings anymore. So I wore my wedding ring for maybe like six years. And then I just quit. And you might have worn yours for like, two years but it kept flying off your finger. Yeah, people
0: like, get an extender, get this. And then I would see like people do you ever see these people that like take off their wedding ring and it's like, I don't know, fucking alien skin under there. Do you know (laughs) what I mean? It's like I
1: still have a mark from where I used to wear mine. Oh wow. But I haven't worn it for many years. But like yeah, I used to have the tan line or like the yeah, little fish belly skin underneath because you never take it off. And I've also seen people who Like in your case, where their ring flies off, they like put like masking tape or something on it, and it gets gross. You don't want to do that. I'd just rather not wear it at all. It's no big deal. But boy, people have a real toot about it.
0: Yeah, definitely. Well, and also, I would need to take mine off a lot, too. Yeah. And if you forget to take your wedding ring off, that could be a pretty big problem.
1: Well, or you could be like, uh, and they live rowdy roddy piper wouldn't take his off oh yeah and he was just like i'm married i'm not taking my ring off so they just shot with it
0: piper yeah he's still look man he holds his ground you and i we don't care
1: no i'm married to you whether i have a ring on or not it's fine
0: what i do is like in place of the ring within the first like minute or two (laughs) i i I managed to sneak in oh my wife and then i'm like i'm good it's the same thing as the ring yeah i did it i did it you know
1: yeah, I it's funny though to me that that's like the big evidence, like the big big evidence when Jeff calls Doyle at the end and he's like she's her ring is still in the apartment. I'm like who gives a shit? Like I thought that the dog evidence was pretty good. Like this little dog that lives up on the third floor. They let him down in a basket, which I think is super cute. I love that. And he's just real interested in the garden. Um, all the time. And it turns out that something was buried in the garden but has been moved. And, you know, the most evil act for me is not that Thorwald kills his wife, but it, that he kills a little dog.
0: <laughs> it is so bad. Like, I just started thinking about John Wick. Like, I didn't remember about, you know, Thorwald murdering this cute little puppy. I was oh, so upset. I was upset. so upset. <laughs> And then they, they pull up they pull up the corpse.
1: Yes, and the oh little my basket is awful. Oh whole, oh it's yeah. so sad. Oh, I've been horrible. traumatized by this since I was like a child. I mean, Mrs. Thorwald was kind of an asshole. That little dog did nothing to deserve that. So I was very upset about it.
0: Well, in the actual like Truffaut Hitchcock thing, Truffaut was like, Oh yeah, it's kind of funny, you know, these people get so upset about the dog. And he seemed like, you know, kind of a D. (laughs) You're like, true Five sucks. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much. Well, then Hitchcock is like, well, that's their child. You know what I mean? He was like, I felt like he's on our team. He knew like how heinous it was. He gets it. Well, we have a lot of visual cues when we look next door. We also have like this red light that's outside of Thorwald's apartment. You know, I don't see that with any of the other apartments. Like right in the hallway, there's this red light. Yeah. I paid attention to it.
1: Well, one of my favorite scenes in the entire movie, and maybe one of the scariest to me, is when the dog does die and you hear the scream and everybody goes to their windows. Everybody in the entire apartment complex in every building comes to their window to see what's going on and see that the dog died. The only person that doesn't is Thorwald, who sits in his apartment with all the lights off. And you know that he's in there because you see him smoking a cigarette. You see like this orange dot kind of flare up and then kind of die down and then flare up and die down. And it's just so creepy to imagine him having killed this dog after, you know, digging up whatever body part of this wife it was trying to get at. And then going back up to his apartment sitting in the dark smoking the cigarette it's creepy yeah
0: he's terrifying i mean i think that there's like this real thing happening where we're showing him as like the devil or a demon because he's literally in the dark right so he's like the prince of darkness he's got this red glowing orange you know thing here from a cigar cigarette whatever And, you know, it's like, okay, this this is super creepy. And also, it looks like Thorwald, the way he sleeps, I'm guessing it's a couch. Okay, so he just lays down in front of the window. And then when he gets up, it looks like a vampire getting out of a coffin. Now, again, this is another thing that mirrors Jeff's apartment. His bed is right next to the window. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like, I don't know if that was just a thing back in the day, or it you know, was because of the heat, but there are so many comparisons between no, the two. No, I think
1: it's intentional. I mean, it's, it's Hitchcock. We just like spent the first 20 minutes of this show talking about how he does every single thing on purpose, so yeah. it's definitely on purpose.
0: Well, when we see Thorwald with the saw, wow. Holy
1: shit, yeah, he's like wrapping it up with a machete or something, Ooh. and this is where I thought it was really funny because... When uh, Jeff is explaining to Doyle about, you know, the saw and the knife, he just keeps calling it a knife. I'm like, could you, like, describe the knife a little? Maybe that would help. Because if Doyle is just sitting here picturing some, like, you know, steak knife from the kitchen, that's a slightly different image than, like, this freaking massive knife that we see him wrapping up with the saw. That's a good
0: point. It's like he's Jason Voorhees <laughs> or something, you know.
1: It's a huge knife, Jason. Yeah. I mean, it's a it's like almost like a machete, but it has like a sharper looking blade with like a point at the end of it. I mean, there's you're up to no good with that knife. No.
0: And if that is what was standard for a knife back then, wow. I mean, I bet like eating a steak would be pretty awkward.
1: <laughs> it, would be. it would be. Get a really big one because holy hell. <laughs> I mean, wow, yeah, I thought that was nuts.
0: Well, the plan that Thorwald has, you know, with his mistress and the postcard, that is so elaborate.
1: Yeah, it is. Well, these are based on real murders, so no. yeah, um, it's based on two different ones. The I believe that the short story itself was okay. Um, sort of. Uh, it's a bit elaborate, but it's based on the Crippen case, which is a pretty famous murder. And it's also based on uh, Patrick Mann, uh, who murdered, I believe, his pregnant mistress and cut her into pieces. I think he burned the head in his fireplace and chopped up the rest of the body and threw it into the river in different areas. Wait,
0: wait, that was in that Hitchcock Truffaut? It was. Oh my God, yes, yes. That was gruesome. Yeah. That was gruesome.
1: And then, like, the Crippen case is kind of a similar... Thing. I mean, that one's really well-known. I'd, I'd read that in other contexts. Mm. Crippen was this doctor who was married to this woman, and they kind of were, had fallen out of love. He started an affair with someone else, and he kind of told some different stories about what had happened to his wife, um, eventually saying that she had just died. But then his mistress had started wearing some of her clothes and moved in with him and stuff. And then they kind of ran away and were traveling as if they were father and son. Um, she was disguised as a boy. It's really elaborate and bizarre. It's, a, it's an interesting case. You should just look it up and read about it. But they did definitely say that was an inspiration to this movie. Wow. Because you have this guy who's an un, in an unhappy marriage. He's kind of falling in love with somebody else. The two of them conspire to get rid of his wife. Um, because this new woman is posing as Anna Thorwald in Merrittsville, saying, you know, picking up the the trunk with all Mrs. Thorwald's clothes and and everything. So they had it really well planned out. And Hitchcock is super sympathetic that that meddling bastard Jeff, you know, screwed it up <laughs> for a,
0: So something else I want to bring up, speaking about the murder, because when you were talking, I was like, oh, yeah, it's from the Hitchcock Truffaut thing we just talked about. In the Patrick Mann case, he had his wife's head, and he put it in the fireplace to burn. But they said it was like a movie because it started to rain. (laughs) And it put out out (laughs) the flame. So it's just like, holy shit. Like, you know, if we saw that in a movie, we would never believe it. No. We would never believe it. We would never accept it. It would not be anything that is remotely okay for us. Um, It's amazing how sometimes, you know, reality truly is stranger than fiction.
1: It's true. Yeah, it is.
0: It's a great movie when you can take so much of this stuff and just wrap it around Also, there is one thing I want to do talk about with the foreshadowing. We do see at the very beginning of the film, you know, uh, Thorwald is actually out at the garden. He's with the flowers and there is a woman who's sunbathing and she's laying out and she goes over to give him advice Mm -hmm. about the flowers and Thorwald, complete dick, (laughs) just flings dirt at her, you know, and then, you know, she's upset. I mean, why wouldn't you be? Yeah, she's, yeah,
1: she's. Kind of disgusted.
0: Yeah, and she goes away. Well, the state of affairs with the neighbors there is very difficult because when the dog is murdered, that actually leads to this this impassioned uh, monologue saying, you know, all of you are horrible people. You know, I can't believe you'd let this happen. You know, it, it just talks about how much distrust and how unhappy they are. Yeah. You know, it with everything. And again, this is in direct, you know, opposition to what we saw at the beginning of the film with this wonderful place. Yeah. You know, at the end of the film, things are wonderful because things have restored. There is there is a new order. Well that's and people back.
1: people have connected. Yes. Like, you know, Miss Lonely Hearts was gonna commit suicide, but then she hears the song being played by the musician guy upstairs and then we see at the end that she's actually in the apartment with him talking and listening to his record um sidebar that guy that plays a musician is Ross Bagdasarian who actually invented Alvin and the Chipmunks (laughs) so he's a real musician and I thought that was kind of hilarious but anyway um, he, you know, the two of them have this have made this connection, but all is not perfect because we still have um, the married couple and now they're bickering. So oh, yeah. the, the newlyweds that initially were super happy and never had the shade up because they must have been up to it in there the whole time. <laughs> Uh, The last time we see them, she's saying, well, I never would have married you if I knew you were going to quit your job. Mm. So we already have like, you know, we're sowing the seeds for the next Thorwalds in there.
0: Well, and at this point, Jeff knows well enough to not get involved. Yeah. You know, and it's well, it's almost like Jeff is is playing out like almost a God fantasy
1: Yeah, I see that.
0: You know, he's looking around and it's like you could say, you know, maybe he feels like a father to these people or he feels, you know, some kind of connection. I mean, I think really what it is, I don't know what the popularity of television was at this point, but it's not like now where we have so many options. Yeah. You know, you can just plunk down and you can just keep clicking. You can go from story to story to story to story. And with Jeff, he's doing that, but in real life. You know, and it's just like instead of you know moving your antenna to get a bigger signal, you just get a bigger device. You know, to to look. Yeah. Yeah.
1: It's very true. I mean, and that kind of points toward you know us, our obsession with entertainment now Mm. as being a form of voyeurism, because we're just looking in on other people's lives, especially with the rise of reality television. Yeah. Which is supposed to be us really looking at people's real lives. Not that it is, because it isn't. But that's, you know, the whole idea is that it is. You know, it's real people doing real things.
0: Reaction videos.
1: Yeah.
0: I mean, that's literally what we're talking about. We want to see that. We have like these hidden camera shows. They've been around for years, right? We want to see what people will be like if they don't think anyone's watching. We really want to get inside. You know, people want to watch, you know, all kinds of things. They want to watch murder. They want to watch sex. They want to watch something that will make them happy, sad, scared. I mean, going to the movies, what do we do? We're looking at a huge window, right? Yeah. We're surrounded by screens, right? We have our phones. We have our computers. We have our televisions. We have our tablets.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I think about that sometimes, about how I almost don't know what it's like to be in a situation where I am not being distracted by a story. Either, you know, I'm watching television, I'm watching a movie, I'm watching a video on my phone from social media, or, you know, even if I'm reading a book, you know, I'm I'm pulling myself out of my own life to look at someone else's.
0: Yeah, and with a book... That's different because you're using your own imagination to generate that image. Yeah. With everything else, you're just having it spoon-fed to you.
1: Yeah, but I mean, even, if, even with a book, you're like leaving your own reality to look at somebody else's. Yes. Even if it is an imaginary someone else. So, uh, yeah, I think that we are very obsessed with what other people are doing. Yeah, we are. People are nosy. They want to know you know it's like we've had
0: things even in our own apartment complex oh yeah you see people like you see the blinds moving because they just had to peek yeah they have to see what's going on we were standing in line to get the the signature for john carpenter how many people stopped in the middle of an la street what are you guys doing what's
1: going on yelling at us from the car what are you doing here i mean (laughs) but you know and i have to say in our own apartment complex if i heard a noise. My first thought would be to look out when we hear noises in the street. I open up our patio door to see what's going on. You know, it's I guess it's just a natural human thing that you're curious and you want to see what other people are doing.
0: Well, when we were in the apartment for lockdown, one of the big things that that we would do is we would look out our window. You know, we have, like, this big window we can look out that looks at the park. And we also set up some hummingbird feeders. Yeah. So that was, like, again, our little video. You know, that was our show. Yeah. So it's, like, we we need something like that. We need this kind of, I guess, entertainment. We need to be able to, to watch other people. I mean, maybe it's, it's something where we're, we're like, somewhere you know comparing ourselves to others seeing how we're matching up are we doing a good job (laughs) the other thing that i want to bring up is actually jeff says at one point something along the lines of you know people look in on me right so it's like you know he's aware that he's also part of the show and again he has his bed near the window right lisa's staying over right yeah you know And Jeff's like, I only have one bed. So it's like, they're giving them a show too. So it's, it's really.
1: Well, he doesn't sleep in the bed. So. Oh yeah, that is true. That is true. There's nothing going on there this moment. There could be in the future. And you know, Jeff would just be like, look. Well, I don't know. Because every time Jeff feels that he's being seen, he immediately like books it out of the window. You're right. Yeah.
0: You're right. Well, and. Here's another one. This ties back in with looking over there. So in the big scene with the wedding ring, when Lisa shows the wedding ring from Thorwald's apartment, okay, this is, I believe, the only point in the film where Stella actually grabs the binoculars. And, you know, Jeff has, of course, his long telephoto. Mm -hmm. And if we're going back to these erection metaphors, (laughs) it's like, you know, Stella got, you know, like a woman chubby. With the wedding ring, oh, the, lady boner. your lady voter, yeah, because it's like she was like marry her, and she's absolutely right. He should marry her, you yeah. know. And it takes Jeff to put, you know, his soon bride to be. I think, you know, we we never confirmed on that, but I'm I'm pretty confident that she has to be in mortal danger, right? And then again, it's a scene where Thorwald is slapping around Lisa. He catches yeah. her in the he apartment. Does, yeah. Very similar. To the Miss Lonely Hearts scene. And they don't do anything. They don't do anything. It's like he, he's in horror. You know, Jimmy Stewart's acting is incredible. He's like, oh no. But he doesn't do anything to stop it. Well, because
1: they know that the police are coming, but they can't make it happen quicker or anything like that. its It's a very tense scene. I mean. It's crazy. I mean, obviously everybody knows that Hitchcock is like the master of suspense. Mm-hmm. But even, I mean, this was like over the top how suspenseful it was. Yeah. I mean, and that's a point when we very clearly see, uh, Jeff being caught looking because she shows the wedding ring. Thorwald notices her kind of waving that across the way to Jeff. And we then immediately see Thorwald look over and just lock eyes on jeff um you know jeff's looking through the lens but either way he's caught he's caught like red-handed and that's when that's what leads to their confrontation which i do want to talk about quickly definitely um so you know this is after after that scene um jeff calls doyle you know, tells him you got to go get Lisa out of the, out of jail, you know, and we found the wedding ring thing and Doyle is forced to say, well, okay, it sounds like you have something there. And he goes, you know, into action. The phone rings again and he starts talking as if it's to Tom, but then he realizes that it's not Tom because Tom would have said something already. So it's Thorwald. You know, and he's he wants to know who this is. He's like, who, you know, he wants to know what's going on. He then comes to the apartment, which is a very scary scene. Mm -hmm. Jeff is sitting in the dark, and the only light is like this slit of light under the door, and then that's covered up by a shadow. So we know that somebody's there, and it's this physically imposing person, Thorwald. He comes into the apartment, and... The only thing that Jeff has as a weapon is the flash bulbs for his camera, which he then like shoots at uh, Thorwald, and it's completely pitch dark. So this flash, like they did a camera effect, so it's a special photographic effect that was done by uh, special photographic effects supervisor John Fulton of kind of like this POV of Thorwald looking at Jeff and seeing like this orange kind of circle um, closing up. And they actually did this because they did an experiment of what it would actually look like if you're in a dark room and somebody did a flashbulb in your face. So three different, or not three, Several crew members were tasked to go into, like, a blackened room and have a flashbulb go off. And all of them reported that it had, like, this kind of orange circle effect for them. And that's what John Fulton recreated in those kind of POV shots. So he gets them with it, like, four times or whatever. And then they have, like, this struggle, which is intense, I mean cuz Jeff is there with his broken leg and it's not just a broken leg like it's all the way up to his hip basically they yeah. they have plastered around his body and you know Thorwald is not a small guy like Raymond Burr is like a big dude and they're like really tussling <laughs> and then like you know he's uh, he's caught and when he's caught uh, Jeff falls out the window again And it's another kind of a weird camera effect of him falling that was used multiple times in different Hitchcock movies.
0: Wow. It's just, it's such a great scene. It's such a scary scene. It's so well set up because he's in there, you know, with Stella, they see Lisa get arrested. Right. He sends
1: Stella out. Right. So he's by himself. It's,
0: it's just so well done. Yeah. It makes perfect sense. You get, you know where we're headed uh, yeah and to use the tool that is everything to him you know i love that i, I do love too that.
1: i think that's so brilliant it's just so smart oh what a great movie all right so i think that's it for our discussion of rear window we went to some really odd places <laughs> <laughs> so I hope that was okay. <laughs> I'm an odd
0: person. What can I tell you guys? All right.
1: Well, it's just a great movie. I, I really love that we started here for Hitchcock. And I'm sure that we, you know, we, we probably will have a Hitchcock month dedicated at some point in the future. Absolutely. Um, but, you know, we decided to not just do Hitchcock mysteries. We're going to do different, you know, different director mysteries. And next week, we're going to come back and discuss The Big Lebowski which is a Cohen Brothers film. And uh, it's based on another film, The Big Sleep, uh, which is a detective story from way back in the day. So I didn't actually know that the first time I watched Big Lebowski. But no. when I did know it, it started to make a lot more sense. <laughs> so... I had
0: the same thing. I, I could go into this so deep. I can't wait to talk about it. <laughs> it's going to be great. Yeah. So
1: we hope that you'll join us again next week to talk Big Lebowski. Uh, As our second mystery of the month. And uh, yeah, we're looking forward to continuing to dig in on this and uh, investigate.
0: Yeah, we're going to get the clues. (laughs) We're going to put the bad guys in jail. (laughs) You're busted, buddy.
1: (laughs) All right, everybody. Until next week, stay comfy.
0: Stay comfy.